At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Blog Talk Radio. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Troy Noon's Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, John Casillo, and quickly before we start, I just want to give a shout out to today's sponsor, Audible.com. As you know, they're a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and info. You can listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever, and you can get a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash noonsmagician. So, highly recommend checking that out. Uh, today we're previewing Louisville, and uh, our special guest today is Mark Ennis. Mark, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well, thanks for having me on. Not a problem. Figured if we were talking Louisville, there are few people more qualified than you, and few people less qualified than me. So, <laughs> first, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for rejoining us. We actually kind of missed you guys for the past year. Um, I'm sure you mm-hmm. missed competent conferences. Yeah, I gotta say, uh, I will not miss. Uh, all of the I formation associated with uh, the former Biggie. And I, I'm thrilled to be joining uh, the ACC, even if it does mean going back uh, to playing Syracuse, who has actually laid a number of uh, rather uncomfortable beatings on Louisville over the last couple of years. Actually, one of our only, uh, well, for some reason, you guys and uh, West Virginia became, went from people that, that kind of went up one side of us and went, you know, down the other to suddenly, I don't know, if Marone cracked the code and then Schaefer kind of, I mean, well, didn't really face either, but on defense at least. It seemed that under Marone, suddenly, you know, teams that had our number, aside from Pitt, um, we suddenly figured out, I mean, it's not to say it's dominance or anything like that. I mean, the things that Louisville and West Virginia in particular did to us um, during the Greg Robinson era, um, I will personally never recover from. <laughs> but... Nonetheless, I think how we performed against teams like that, um, I think, did kind of, you know, start to show at least some people um, that, that we were coming out of what was a very, very uh, dark period for us. Well, I can honestly say I think uh, Louisville fans can sympathize because there were the Cragthorpe years uh, that were in equally dark period, and, and unfortunately, I think for the two of us there was that brief period of time where Craig and Greg Robinson overlapped, uh, resulting in some of the worst football ever, including uh, the, the Paulus years, although I guess that was Marone, still sort of the shadow of Greg Robinson, the 10-9 the to 9 game, you know, that sort of thing. So we're glad, thankfully, that all of that is in both of our paths. As am I. Uh, I, was, I was at Syracuse for the last three years of Robinson, and the first year of Marone. And um, so, yeah, the, the fact that I'm still a Syracuse football fan after all that is kind of, uh, kind of a testament to me hating myself, I guess. <laughs> well, here, let, I'll say this about uh, the, the Greg Robinson years and the, the, the way that one, uh, in going through bad times, can still inflict pain on others. Uh, 07, back to our first year, 
Louisville had just lost at Kentucky, lost Kentucky for the first time in years, uh, come home and play Syracuse, and I think they were 30-something point favorites and lost at home to Syracuse. Syracuse throws an enormous touchdown pass on the first play of the game, and the thing I remember most about that game is the people around me were all in a bad mood because Louisville had already lost to, to Kentucky the week before, and the fans groaning audibly as the ball is in the air because the guy was that wide open. Everyone knew it was going to be a touchdown on the very first play. Uh, and it ended up being one of the worst days ever. It was like a 1,000 degrees outside in Syracuse beat Louisville. And that's when everybody knew this kind of thing's not going to work. It's funny how things like that work out, and whether it's, you know, a microcosm of a season or a tenure or even a game. Um, but those moments when um, something bad's going to happen and you know, you, you just sit there. I, I know, I'm sure both of us can, can recount, you know, tons of stories on both ends about just, just times when you saw that shit was about to hit the fan and and you really, there was just no stopping it. I know for me, I mean, countless football games, but in particular, for some reason I knew in the third quarter of the the 2006 Iowa game when we were stuck to the goal line eight straight times, I, I almost I almost saw that exact ending set up the way it was. Oh. My first game on campus, it was the worst. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, with Syracuse uh, and Louisville, the next year, Louisville, well, Louisville goes 6-6, six and six, Tricorp was first year, but they don't go to a bowl game because there, was, there weren't enough bowl bits at the time. The next year, they start the season 5-2, and two, and they actually beat South Florida, who was ranked at the time, at home. And Louisville actually got votes in the rankings in week 7 of the 07 season. And I can vividly remember ESPN writing that he was cranked up was a coach of the year candidate and that he did see he had not forgotten how to coach. So at that point, Craigtorp's eleven and and eight and he's got things turned around. Louisville has a bye week, one more win, they're bowl eligible. They have the bye week, they travel to Syracuse, they lose at Syracuse again. And then they lose every game the rest of the season and go five and seven. Don't make a bowl game. And everyone knew after they lost that Syracuse, this this thing is over. It's never going to be good. It's never going to be consistent. So Syracuse sort of punctuated the beginning and end of anybody's faith in Craig Thorpe. So congratulations for that. <laughs> well, I guess we're glad that we got to uh, help move you guys on to another era in many ways. It was funny. You mentioned the 5-2 and two start, and I, the first thing that flashed in my mind was um, the 2011 season when we absolutely throttled West Virginia on national television on a Friday night. I was in Vegas with all of my – with my now wife and my roommates from Syracuse losing my mind as, you know, at the time beating, like, the 15th-ranked team in the country mm-hmm. decisively, watching ESPN's Andrew Edelson – pick us to go to the Orange Bowl like that following Monday and then us to go 0-5 the rest of the way. <laughs> that's funny because that that was the same Friday that Louisville was playing Rutgers at home and Louisville had been 2-4 and four and uh, was really kind of struggling with all their freshmen playing that year. And as Louisville was beating Rutgers and kind of starting to turn that second season around that ended 7-5, and five, Everyone in the press box was hooing and on 
because Syracuse was throttled in West Virginia and actually had that game on the TVs in the press box while we worked the Louisville game. So I vividly remember that uh, as well. We have been co-miserators uh, uh, for a number of, sort of rough seasons, so it's nice to sort of be back among friends again. Yeah, I mean, speaking of friends, I mean, I know you have us and, and Pitt, but, like, who do you guys see? I know the ACC and their Hackneyed crossover rivals kind of put you guys against, UV, against UVA, but, like, who do you who do you see other than, like, your, the familiar faces as, like, a team that you guys will, will generate some kind of, you know, weird camaraderie with, maybe a weird rivalry with? I mean, sort of in a similar way to what you did with us when you showed up in the old Big East. I really think uh, that the the school Louisville has the best chance to kind of develop an organic rivalry with is NC State, and it's because they they are about the same, you know, uh, historically have not won a national championship or anything, but have been better than average or pretty good over the years, and both have the same in-state chip on their shoulder here, in Kentucky, everywhere outside of Louisville is big blue country. And for North Carolina, they've got where they're NC State where they are. They're rabid for them. They've had decent success. They've been a good but not great uh, program, and everyone in the state cares about Duke and North Carolina. And it's the same kind of uh, uh, MO and the same sort of uh, psychological chip on their shoulder, the little brother complex kind of thing. And I really think those two schools are, are very similar. Hell, they even look the same, sort of the red and white and that sort of thing. So I think the NC State of all the schools that Louisville is sort of going to be playing for the first time on a regular basis is the one that Louisville really has the best chance uh, to develop kind of a fun rivalry with. I definitely buy into that. And I think it's, it, it is interesting now because of how wacky the divisions are that you kind of – you know, when we first got to the ACC, I know we were first looking at, all right, you know, we'd love to rekindle things with Miami. We'd love to rekindle things with Virginia Tech. Then realizing how, how you know, few times we play them. So, I mean, you are kind of, uh, you know, confined to whoever your crossover rival is um, and, and the other 16 in your division. I mean, how do you – I guess we can get into some of the change within Louisville. Obviously, new head coach, new quarterback, um, and – and new conference. What do you? I guess, what do you see as the biggest um, biggest hurdle for you guys to kind of achieve the same type of success you did in the Big East, either short term, long term? I guess well both. Like, what would you see as both the short term and long term hurdles that you guys need to get over? Well, I, I think the 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 short and long term hurdles are the same, and they're Florida State and Clemson. I think that. Uh, you know, uh, and I think you can probably relate to this, having been in the Big East as long as you were, uh, to really matter nationally with the Big East not being all that respected and the AAC the same way. You either were undefeated or unranked. It was one or the other. Like, And so uh, I wrote about this for our ESPN 680 uh, preseason magazine that we put out. You could not, like by definition, have an intermediate season. You could you couldn't go eight and four, nine and three, and kind of be happy because you would be unranked, and everyone would think you were crap if you lost any games at all. It's like kind of what Boise State goes through. It's either you're undefeated and overrated, or you're underrated because people won't let you have anything in the middle because of what they think of the Big East. So I think 
the, the, the biggest hurdle for Louisville is going to be getting used to the fact that, you know, barring issues really at, at Florida State and Clemson, it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of 8-4 and four and 9-3 and three seasons. I mean, it just is. Uh, look, those schools, they're at a different level. Uh, you know, you have experienced it up front now. Uh, they recruit at a different level. They do football at a different level year in and year out. And it's one thing to get them in a bowl game or something like that, or it's one thing for Louisville to beat them back in 2001 when they were sort of muddling through the end of the Bobby Bowden year. But, you know, Florida State and Clemson, where they are right now, they're beating Ohio State in the Orange Bowl. They're winning a national championship. That's a different monster. And I think that both next year and every year, uh, fans around here being happy with a season where you maybe go nine and three, don't make the ACC championship game, and going to the the uh, Chick Fil A Bowl or the the Russell Athletic Bowl, whatever it is, against a good opponent from somewhere. I mean, that's the way it's probably going to be most years. And every once in a while, sort of the right collection of guys comes together, and maybe maybe you beat Florida State or Clemson, and maybe once in a while make the ACC championship game. Uh, I think it's possible, but. You know, I think some fans are a little rosy. I really do. In for a little bit of a rude awakening about how it's going to go uh, once they're in the ACC because Florida State and Clemson, it's just a different, different animal. Yeah, you know, and I think you're right there. Like, I I think all of us were a little jaded last year. I mean, obviously we, we were triumphantly, you know, in. We felt that we – we accomplished a ton at the at the end of our time, and like winning a, you know, thanks to you guys, you know, tying for a Big East championship on our way out in football, going to the Final Four in basketball. I mean, we had we had probably more confidence than Syracuse fans have had since 2003. <laughs> I mean, going into the ACC, and you know, I mean, we, we looked past a lot of the non-Florida State and Clemson schools, and to be honest rightfully so. If you feel like you have a competent football product, you're at least going to be competitive with those schools, and in many cases we beat them. Um, and we beat everybody else in our division last year besides Florida State and Clemson. Um, but then, you know, I, I think there are a lot of fans that talk themselves into, well, maybe we have a shot against Clemson. Maybe we have, like, I mean, nobody really believed the Florida State now. People thought that we could come within, like, four touchdowns, and that wasn't even close. But it, it, there is definitely a... a a bit of a step up that that you don't see, and, and you guys will notice it as well. You won't see it against the Wakes and the BCs and the well, and some of the other like most of the other middle of the road schools that make up like 75 percent of the conference. But suddenly, w- when you start playing those Florida State and Clemson's and walk into those buildings, um, I mean that's kind of that's really when it hits you. And I think it's taking kind of a reset uh, on our part for some fans that really do remember you know, the, the quote-unquote glory days of Syracuse football, um, whether it was late 80s or, or when McNabb was on campus. And, you know, resetting those people saying, like, guys, our, our, our new, like, we had a very dark, dark decade for the most part. Now we need to we need to reset. And, and to us, like, the max is 9-3, and three, at least from, from you know, my standpoint. It seems like from, from you guys, from your standpoint, too, like, until until recruiting catches up or until one of these programs trips and stumbles a little bit, um, Florida State and Clemson have elevated themselves in the last four years under their current head coaches, um, you know, to just this – to 
a place that both helps and hurts the ACC at the same time, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, especially now with um, a program like Louisville that's been incredibly successful over the last few years. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, in as much as that really is a challenge, I think the other challenge will be uh, for folks to realize, and I'm sure that you've experienced this uh, as well, you know, in in the Big East and certainly last year in the AAC, if, if Louisville, you could tell there were there were games where Louisville did not respect the opponent, and they really came out flat. And, and when you don't think your opponent can beat you, uh, you either absolutely annihilate them, like they did with FIU last year, where seventy-two to nothing, and they, you know, they FIU illegally got a running clock for a while, uh, or you have these utterly unsatisfying games that you sleepwalk through, you look bad, you look bored, but you win, and it's like you win and you feel like you lost. You know, and they go on the road and they beat UConn by like 17, and they drop nine passes, and it was just boring. And they did the same thing with with, uh, Memphis to close the season. Yeah, they won the game. They only won by seven. They just sort of jacked around because they didn't care. And I think that the the danger will be in the ACC. I think that Boston College and Syracuse and NC State, uh, uh, Wake Forest, are going to be good enough that if Louisville does that, they will lose. And that's the difference, and I think that they're going to have to guard against that. I think the nice thing for Louisville is Charlie just wanted to get the business done and get out. He, he, He really did not care one bit about style points, about making a statement. A lot of people really resented big chunks of last year where they felt like this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where we have an easy schedule and a stellar quarterback. Uh, we should annihilate teams. We should really sort of pedal to the metal and, and make the most of this because it's going to be a lot harder going forward, and they didn't. And Bobby Petrino, he will. He will go for two. He will throw another touchdown. He will, he will try to score 56 points. Uh, he'll do that. So I think that Louisville's probably going to be safe from taking lower opponents lightly because Bobby does like to, to sort of like to score word up and be a little bit of a dick. Uh, but if they do pussyfoot around like they did a couple of times the past couple of years because of the quality of the opponent, they're going to lose, and that's different. Yeah, you brought up a good point there, and and believe me, I completely agree. I'm curious, though, with with all of that kind of taking opponents lightly last year, um, and obviously having a weaker schedule, not not by your own fault. Um, what would you, where I guess would you have gauged the team at the end of the season? Like, with aside from wins and losses, like was was Louisville truly a top ten team that just couldn't get up for certain opponents? Were they a top five team or were they just a top 20 team? I, I mean, I think that's a question a lot of people had at the end of the year. And, you know, you had a lot of lazy folks in some parts of the media that simply wrote them off because of confidence. But I think there's a lot more to dive into with that team than just the wins and losses and, and that strength of schedule. Yeah, I, I think Louisville was, was one of the ten best teams in the country. I really do. I think if you look back now, they had a first-round quarterback, two first-round guys on the defense uh, and they, they are uh, a first-rounder, future first-rounder, a wide receiver in Devontae Parker, who's back this year. Uh, that was a top-ten team, and I think if you look back, they had a basically a one-point loss to a Central Florida team that annihilated Baylor in the Fiesta Bowl, whose only loss was to South Carolina by a, a touchdown at home. Uh, 
Uh, I think Central Florida and, and Louisville were both top ten teams. They beat teams that they played. Central Florida beat Penn State at Penn State last year. Louisville uh, I mean, crushed Miami in, in its bowl game. I think they were both top ten teams. And I think that I don't think Louisville would have done very well against Florida State. I don't think they would have done very well against Alabama. Uh, but I think that they would have scored some points. I think they would have hung around. Uh, I think that they would have had trouble defending Auburn like everybody did. Uh, but I think that everybody had trouble <laughs> with Alabama. And I think if you'd put Louisville on the field with LSU, I think they would have moved the ball. I think they would have scored some points. They would have been fine. I think they uh, they could have played with, with Ohio State. Hell, I think they could have beaten Ohio State. I think Ohio State was a little bit overrated. Uh, I think Louisville was a top ten team. I think Central Florida was too. And it was really a shame that both uh, just never really had uh, – people's respect or much of a reason to pay attention to them, uh, and I think they both showed how good they were in the bowl game. I think that's a great point. Um, and, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to me. I mean, obviously, both of us are on the right side of this conversation now, thankfully, but, I mean, do you think that, that the playoff ever invites a team outside of those power five conferences now? I mean, you look at exposure alone. I, I just think that exposure and narrative um, set by, you know, numerous outlets, just seeing that, you know, I mean, I know, like, you and I would talk about it occasionally on Twitter. I know you talked with a lot of other folks at SB Nation, too. Um, but there's just not, there isn't the same gauge applied to every program, and, and that's always been college football, and fairly likely it always will be. But I guess to me, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if, you know, Marshall has a joke of a schedule this year and could very well go 13-0. I mean, if every major conference team loses at least a game, and if Marshall just bludgeons the hell out of everybody they face and goes 13-0, I, I, I kind of want to see how this uh, how this committee deals with that in year one. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the thing people are not paying enough attention to with regards to what you're asking about a non-Power 5 team making the playoffs is their decision – to give the top-ranked non-Power 5 team a guaranteed spot in one of the access bowls. I think the fact that they did that is going to be their outlet for the Boise States and the Marshalls or the Central Force. They're going to put them in one of those bowl games. They're going to let them play somebody really good in one of those bowl games. But the fact that it's there and that it's an option is why they'll never make a playoff. I think that they created that spot. They did that to avoid really ever having to put them in uh, a playoff. And I think that the only way that they actually make a playoff is if it is a two. Basically, what Boise had had they not lost to Nevada uh, a couple of years ago, where it was a two-year rolling buildup, where they had been really good in one bowl game, really good again, really good again, and people were basically giving them credit two-and-a-half years of buildup, and they have a killer non-conference schedule. Uh, that's the only way that a UCF or a Cincinnati or a Boise or uh, Houston in the new league or uh, you know Marshall, like you mentioned, Marshall with its schedule next year, they can win every game by 60. The best they're going to be doing is in one of those access bowls uh, next year. They're not going to make the playoff. But if it's a situation where a team goes undefeated, Windsor Bowl game, 
undefeated wins their bowl games, and most of them is back like that Boise team was with Kellen Moore and those wide receivers and all that, and they have a good non-conference win like they did against Georgia that year, I could see that team getting in. But that's the only scenario where I think one of these non-power fives gets in is if it's a multiple-year kind of build-up and people have made peace with it over multiple years because I think in any single given year, people really want to see the good teams that don't play each other play each other in the postseason, and that's what they're going to give them. I mean, that's a great point. You're right. Nobody is talking about that. It, it is a scapegoat. I mean, it's very likely a scapegoat situation yeah. in which, yeah, they don't have to reward. And to be honest, at this point, like, there were only a few schools, I mean, that there were only a few schools that were really cracking the BCS code anyway outside those those top ones. Um, Hawaii had that fluke season. Um, and then Cincinnati obviously took advantage of a very, very down Big East. But beyond that, I mean, Boise State's really the only school that quote-unquote cracked the BCS still sitting on the outside. I mean, Utah's in, TCU's in. Uh, I mean, Louisville was part of the BCS system during its birth. Um, so to me, I mean, yeah, unless it's a unless it's a Boise State, I mean, or unless it's another program like UCF decides to spend um, the next five to seven years building itself, you know, brand credentials. Um, I, I do think that the college football is still very much based on brand names and based on, like, you're rarely going to see anyone outside those, you know, 10 to 12 teams you typically see in those championship games um, in this playoff. And I think, you know, a lot of people are getting bent out of shape about the strength schedule argument and all this other, you know, crap. And, and to me, it's straight schedule doesn't matter if if there's, you know, if you're undefeated, you're undefeated as a Power 5 team. I think it doesn't matter. You're 13-0, and 0, you're going to be there. And and that'll go for even even a Wake Forest miraculously goes 13-0. and 0, They're going to be in the playoffs if they're 13-0. and 0. But where it's going to come down to strength of schedule and brand maybe is, you know, team three or four, and there's five one-loss teams, and one of those one-loss teams is, Boston College, and another one is Oregon, you know, which one's getting pushed through, or if it's down to two lost teams, and one of them is Oklahoma, and the other one is NC State, like, then I guarantee you're going to see Oklahoma get through, because at the end of the day, the fact that we've removed any kind of computer element to this, and, and made it a completely human element, unfortunately, um, does does provide a little bit of bias, and, and some bias that may ultimately um, provide even more disagreements than the DCS gave us. I think you're right, and I, th- I think that the, we got a little bit of a taste of this with Swafford arm-twisting Virginia Tech into the Sugar Bowl instead of that Boise State team uh, a couple of years ago that really was was probably better than either of those teams, Michigan or <laughs> uh, Virginia Tech that year, which gave us that awful Sugar Bowl uh, game. I think that uh, the real debate will be if you do get a 12-0 Marshall that beats everybody uh, and beats everybody handily, or if you get a Boise State or a Central Florida that does it a couple of years or what have you, USF, Cincinnati, you name it. Uh, If you have a season where they go undefeated and are impressive versus, uh, let's say, you get an SEC championship game of 12-0 teams, will this committee – Put in 12 and 0 Marshall over the loser of an undefeated SEC championship game, for instance. 
that to me, that's where the battle will happen. Or in the Big 12 where they actually play the round robin, if you get a 12-0 and Oklahoma who beat Texas, who also who then goes 11-1, and and that was their only loss, will this committee put Marshall or UCF or Boise State or Hawaii or Fresno State, one of those, in the playoffs over an undefeated second-place team from those leagues, or excuse me, a one-loss second-place team from those leagues? To me, I think that's where the debates are going to happen. And I think 99 times out of 100, they're going to pick the Power 5 team. No, I, I, I think you hit it on the head there. And I think you covertly brought up another point, and that is, you know, with the Big 12, um, the fact that they don't have a championship game, the fact that, you know, they could conceivably come out of it with a couple teams with one loss. Um, I think what happens to the, the Big 12 champ the next few years, and I mean, it's a weird time for them because while Oklahoma could be a top-five team next year, while Baylor could be a top-ten team, while Texas could potentially, um, you know, rise under strong, but I don't know if, if next year is the year based on recruiting, how recruiting has gone and, and some shifts there. I think it's going to be an interesting case study to see, you know, not to bring up the, the realignment word again, but if the Big 12 is ever going to expand, I would think the next few years kind of decide that. If they can get a, if they can consistently get a team among that top four with one loss, um, I, I think they stand pat. I think if you, if you're suddenly dealing with, you know, the fact that they don't have a championship game really, really hurting them, and you see maybe a Pac-12 champ vault themselves up in the polls on the last week because they won their title game, or an ACC champ do the same. Um, I, I think then maybe, you know, the the realignment talk starts again in earnest, and obviously it's not um, cannibalizing a another Power 5 league, I think, at that point, and I've been saying this for a while. I think, you know, they, they had very few options, and I think the West Virginia move kind of shoves them east, despite the fact that BYU is the best name left on the board. Yeah, I think uh, the Big 12... I understand why they've made the decision to stay at 10. Uh, they don't want to divide that money any further. Uh, everybody in the league that's still there likes having the chance to play Texas and Oklahoma every year. Uh, and I get that. So I have, you know, from kind of a strategic perspective, I understand why they've made the decision that they've made. But I think the thing that they are missing is what the other leagues now get which is a chance to really pile up really highly ranked teams at the top because they don't play each other. And I think it's the thing that the SEC, you kind of catch this with Les Miles griping about having Florida as their crossover opponent. Uh, while, you know, Georgia doesn't play Alabama but once every several years. You know, that sort of thing where the SEC can end up with five, six, ten win teams because they don't play each other because they have 14 teams and only play eight league games. The Big 12, the best they can ever do is one unbeaten team and one one-loss team. And then everybody else has to mathematically have at least two losses. That's the way it has to be because they all play each other. So I think strategically they're missing out on divisional play, giving you a chance to pile up good teams at the top and give yourself a lot of options and a lot of chances to really end up with a bunch of really highly ranked teams. And then sort of no matter what happens, you can get somebody in this new playoff because you're going to end up with an 11-2 and two at worst team that wins your league or something like that. I, that's where I think the Big 12 is going to get bad. I don't think they need the championship game necessarily. I think what they need is divisional play 
that keeps all your top teams from beating all your other top teams. <laughs> That's what I think the SEC and the Big Ten and the ACC will enjoy uh, is that they can pile up a bunch of really good teams because they don't all play each other. Yeah, I mean, you look at our time in the Big East, I, I think that, that the league at the beginning of the BCS when everyone was, was really throwing a hell of a lot of shade, um, well, I guess after the first realignment, um, you know, the, the league was hurt in some ways, at least in the middle, because everyone had to face everyone. Um, I think the Mountain West is maybe fine, like, did find for a little while that everyone facing everyone, or just about everyone, didn't really help them out. Um, I mean, I did a, I think I did an article like a year ago on my old site that, like, compared when two teams got in from a conference with a championship game, how often was it from the same division? I think it was, like, well over, like, 60% of the time it was from the same division. It's just like you said with the with the SEC, like, you you don't put these teams up against the other top teams. You allow them to, you know, not have to suffer another loss. And, and again, that's why you had, at one point, you know, LSU, Alabama, and Arkansas as, like, three of the top five because because they can easily set that up with divisional play. Um, and I guess you're right, like, the Big 12 now is to kind of – they're going to be doing a lot of looking around, and not because they want to, it will be because they have to. Um, I mean, it was said during all the realignment stuff, the Big 12 was on the weakest footing um, – out of everyone, and um, I know people put it as, you know, the ACC was a league that loved, that loved the league, hated the money. The Big 12 was a league that hated the league, loved the money. Um, and I think what you're seeing now is that now the Big 12 is going to have to decide, well, how much do they love the money um, and how much are they willing to give up in in order to kind of, you know, not keep their seat at the table. They'll always have a seat at the table as long as Texas and Oklahoma are there. But you know, how long can they sit around if, if, if they don't put their programs in strategically better positions to make the playoffs? Yeah, and I think you are already seeing uh, a little bit of uh, sort of things coming home to roost. I mean, West Virginia, uh, just a couple of years in, really already uh, pretty upset about how much travel they're having to engage in and asking for concessions and that sort of thing. So, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're going to see – the Big 12, uh, unless there's a powerful team that can go undefeated in a given year, they're going to see, I think, uh, some additional complaining and really uh, concessions and people wanting to maybe do something different uh, in, in hopes of maybe being strategically positioned a little better. So it'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if if them not being able to do that, not pile up a bunch of good teams necessarily hurts them. Uh, or, or if they're all ultimately, it's the same couple of teams that really matter, and they're all just really happy to have the money. It, it, it remains to be seen. Agreed. And so, on that note, I guess we'll jump uh, into halftime here on the show. Uh, so, a quick read for our sponsor, Audible.com. Uh, we're happily sponsored by them, as everyone's heard at this point for the last few shows. Uh, they're a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and info. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including the one you're listening to right now. Uh, you can just go to audibletrial.com slash newsmagician to get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial and two books that I would recommend today both have to do with Louisville somehow. Um, we have Mammoth Cave National Park in Louisville, World's Longest Cave. 
That's about the world's longest cave in Louisville. Uh, have you been there, Mark? Uh, you know, I'm a bad uh, transplanted Kentuckian in that I have never done Mammoth Cave, but I'm not one for uh, fun in games that require a lot of physical activity, and Mammoth <laughs> Caves is definitely that. So I, I am ashamed to admit I have not done that yet. Fair enough. The other one that I'll recommend, uh, the Kentucky Derby, how the Run for the Roses became America's premier sporting event. That sounds like an interesting book that I would actually want to listen to. Yeah, I think if you could, uh, anytime you can brush up on Kentucky Derby history, uh, it's super. So, yeah, I, now that one, that one I would read. That one I would listen to. And then getting past that, um, as always, we talk about booze here at halftime. Uh, Mark, what have you been drinking lately? Beer, bourbon, otherwise? Well, yeah, this is uh, Kentucky. So, uh, you know, we have more barrels of bourbon than we do people, you know, in Kentucky. So, uh, this is bourbon country, and I do enjoy uh, bourbon. I think most of the more well-known, famous uh, bourbon distilleries are less than 15, 20 miles from my house. So the bourbon trail is right down the interstate from me. And uh, I, uh, Maker's Mark, everybody loves Maker's Mark. But me, I like the Four Roses single barrel. Uh, it is my favorite. Uh, I like it, uh, and I get it whenever I can uh, and enjoy it whenever I can, especially uh, when things get a little hectic. I was telling, I know Bud Elliott was on the call a couple of weeks ago, and I was telling him the same thing. I just need to, I need to find a way to get myself into bourbon more. Because I always like it when I drink it, and I just, I spend a hell of a lot of time drinking beer, though, and then it's very tough for me to just suddenly change it up and go drink something different. No, yeah, you gotta, you gotta make, you just have to make an effort. You got to uh, just commit to it, because I think you can get the sort of the same punch. Uh, that you get uh, from a lot of beer with a little bourbon, uh, and it's a lot uh, smoother, I think, going down. So, yeah, you got to make an effort, but I think you'll be rewarded if you do so. I'll keep it in mind. A um, couple picks from me. Um, last week I was drinking uh, Hopperillo Triple IPA from uh, Knee Deep Brewing out here in California. Um, mm-hmm. That was on draft. Uh, it's still, for those who are in the California area, it's Still available in bombers here and there, um, but probably not the easiest to find anymore. Um, Rebellion IPA from Bear Republic, also out here um, in California. I think they get some distribution on that outside of the state, though not far. Um, very nice uh, seasonal, lighter IPA. Uh, definitely surprising. Not a session necessarily. Um, still packs quite the uh, hop punch. And then... Else have I been drinking? Oh, and I also stopped down at again. This is this is the part where I pretty much just talk about California beers. Uh, <laughs> Greenfish <laughs> double uh, Green Shift double IPA from Beachwood Brewing um, and Barbecue for again California residents. Uh, you might be familiar with Beachwood, although apparently Beachwood gets to New York as well, um, New York City. Though I don't think they get um, further up north. So if you can find uh, Green Shift from Beachwood around, I would highly recommend it. Um, all three delicious IPAs. Uh, and, yeah, that was my week in drinking, along with a bunch of much lighter outdoorsy beers that I drank on 4th of July because 85-degree heat and triple IPAs do not mix. <laughs> That's what summer is for. <laughs> I tried doing that, like, once, where I was, like, outside all day. And I'm like, yeah, let's go with the... 
I think you know, I tried in college once. It was like we were outside drinking for like an entire day. I'm like, yeah, I'll drink Sam Adams, which is anyone who's ever had Sam Adams knows it's like the freaking heaviest beer. Oh yeah. And just like has this weird like ability to sit in your stomach. And I just it was just so much regret. I was so exhausted at the end of that. Uh, you know, it's funny, and as you get older, that happens even easier and easier and easier. So uh, stay young uh, and learn to drink something else. That's my only advice to you. <laughs> I, will, I will take that, Mark. <laughs> so I know we were talking a, a good amount about uh, the playoffs and, and kind of the, the, the ACC in general, but I guess diving into Louisville itself, um, how do you feel about – I mean, nobody can be Teddy Bridgewater, um, but, but how do you feel about Will Gardner? Do you think that under Petrino's tutelage he can become um, a very, very good quarterback? Do you think that um, he's he's just someone that's going to kind of keep the seat warm until the next great Louisville quarterback? I think uh, I think I am more I'm higher on Will Gardner than I think uh, a lot of people are, but only because I think I've been paying attention longer and more than the average person. I think when people get a chance to really see him, uh, they're going to like what they see. And I think I've said this uh, a number of different ways. If this was the same staff, if Charlie and Sean Watson were coming back uh, and running kind of that same offense that really has to be sort of hyper-efficient, I would really be worried uh, that he's just not as good as Teddy. But if you have to start over offensively, Having Bobby Petrino and Garrett McGee calling your plays, designing your offense, and coaching your quarterbacks—it's—it's it's a reason to be optimistic a little bit. And and Gardner is big, six five two twenty two thirty. He has taken kind of the leadership mantle seriously. Petrino's praised him a number of times uh, for being sort of the first guy in the weight room, last guy out, studying, knows the playbook, sort of taking on the leadership mantle. Uh, and in the spring game. Uh, and in all the spring practices which were open, he can physically make all the throws. Now, he's a statue in the pocket. He's not going to run anywhere. Uh, but he he showed in the spring game a nice touch on the deep ball, a uh, nice good touch on intermediate throws, can sort of rip it when need be. Uh, so I, I'm pretty encouraged about the quarterback position. I think uh, a Statistically, might not see much of a drop-off, and it doesn't mean he's as good as Teddy, but I just think the offense is going to be different and the coaching is going to be better uh, and sort of more aggressive. And I think Louisville's going to be pretty pretty good uh, at quarterback. Now, if something happens to him, I don't have faith in anybody else on the roster. So they have to keep him upright because I don't think that anybody on the roster is near as good as he is, and it would be a significant loss if Gardner were to go down. All right, I'll... Uh... I mean, admittedly, yeah, you know, I haven't seen as much from Gardner as, as you have, but I would definitely buy it, especially in the Petrino system. Um, I know you guys have four out of five, uh, well, is it four out of five? Starters back on the, on the line? And I think that's yeah, going you know, to yeah. help a lot. I think Gardner's yeah, saying that. You've got four starters, uh, three on the left side, center, left guard, left tackle that have been starting for three years. Uh, as freshmen and ratio freshmen. So it's a, if they find some solid answers on the right side, the offensive line should be a strength. I guess that segues nicely into my next question. Um, how do you feel about about the running back situation? I mean, there's a lot of things to like. Um, obviously, Dominic Brown is a great runner. And, and, you know, Michael Dyer, who mm-hmm. 
who could still completely, um, you know, live up to, to, I guess, the hype at the beginning of his career um, back at Auburn. I mean, what do you – how do you see um, the running game shaping out this year? Do you think it, it, it becomes a focal point, oddly, for, for a Petrino offense, or do you think it kind of falls at least a little bit into the background, does more to, to set up the passing game? Well, I think that, that Bobby is definitely – it's a, it may be a little bit of an underrated part of Bobby as an offensive mind. He loves to run the ball, and, and he ran the ball extremely well in his time here. He added kind of some pistol elements and ran the ball very well at Arkansas. Niall Davis and Dennis Johnson, all these different guys that ran the ball really well uh, at, at Arkansas as well. Ran the ball well last year uh, in his one year at Western Kentucky, so – the running game and play-action passing is a big part of what he does, and I think Louisville is lucky. Dominic Brown, the four-year guy, uh, this is, he's a fifth-year senior, uh, finally gave up his dream of sort of being a dual-threat quarterback and is playing running back and playing well. Uh, but I, I'll be honest with you, I thought in the spring game, and maybe Bobby was just sort of holding Dominic Brown back a little bit, I thought Michael Dyer looked better than he did at any point last season. Last year he... Looked like a guy that really hadn't played football in a year, and then he got hurt. And you didn't really get to see a lot of really elite play from him. But I thought in the spring game he looked fast, he looked quick, he looked healthy. Uh, I think he's going to be stellar this year. And you can remember this name. I don't know how much Bobby's going to use him, but I think he's too good for him to not see sometime. Uh, true freshman L.J. Scott out of Ohio. He enrolled early. He got some first-team reps in the spring. He is uh, a very much a Petrino running back. He's he's a little short. He's big, but he's very fast and very strong runner. He reminds me of Dennis Johnson that he had uh, at Arkansas. That's what I think of when I see him run. I think you see all three of those guys play this year, and I think running back will be a strength for Louisville. I think the Bible will use him uh, to set up the passing game, the play-action passing game. I think Louisville's got as good a depth at running back as he's had in years. And I think running back, Brings up, you know, a great point about the entire conference overall. Um, you know, and I was going on News Magician. We've been going through just kind of, uh, you know, ranking the units um, around the conference. And and the one thing you said was, you know, in previous years, the ACC has been very, very quarterback heavy. Um, but at this point, uh, I mean, there's so much turnover. We're looking at very few returning starters from last year. And running back, on the other hand, while it's it's seemingly gone down in importance um, to the college game overall and to the pro game. Um, in the ACC, uh, you actually see, you know, not just great individual runners. I think there, there are a bunch of those in particular, like Miami's Duke Johnson. But, but you're looking at uh, just a solid, solid, you know, group of, of two to three backs on, on probably seven to eight teams mm-hmm. at the very least. And I think that that, you know, it, it could mean a very different-looking ACC this year versus the last few years where, Things were very pass happy. I think you could see a, a very power focused league that really has a lot of uh, has a lot of low scoring slugfests because of it. I mean, I don't know about you guys necessarily. Um, obviously, you have the receivers to throw the ball. Um, I know for us, running the ball is a focus. Um, Florida State surprisingly runs the ball a ton. Um, Miami's going to be you know short at the quarterback position, so they're probably running the ball a ton. Virginia can't do anything but run the ball. I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting on Saturdays to see just how much people are between tackles. Yeah, and I, look, I think you've got a number of different offenses now that are they're doing different things. It's not I formation stuff 
some so power power spread run based spreads, and then Florida State and I think uh, Louisville are going to be more pro set stuff. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a bunch of really good running backs in this league, and they're recruiting well. And uh, the trend, I think you mentioned it. Nobody has one running back that really cares about 25 times a game anymore. You just can't do that. So I think the, the trend will continue where everybody will have three guys that carry the ball 13 to 15 or 6 to 15 times a game sort of keep the mileage off of everybody and keep everybody fresh and healthy. And uh, it's a challenge for everybody. That's a game plan for that. So I guess talking about that challenge, you know, with such a heavy emphasis on running from opposing offenses, and Louisville lost a bunch um, in the front seven uh, from last year. So do you see that? I mean, I know, like, overall the defense has kind of taken um, a few losses compared to last year. Do you see the front seven being, you know, a real area of concern earlier in the year, especially when you guys have to kind of jump right into Miami and, and stopping Duke Johnson? You know, I think the good news for Louisville is a little – similarly, I think a little bit with the offense. If they were returning and doing the same thing – the losses would be more significant. But basically losing guys and then sort of implementing a new way of doing things, I think you have a chance to mitigate that a little bit. And I think losing three guys that were really good, four, three defensive linemen, uh, and Marcus Smith and the senior defensive tackles, losing those guys but then transitioning to a different kind of defense. I actually think Louisville has really good personnel for for a base three, four defense. I think the linebackers, Maybe the position Charlie Strong recruited the best. I, I think that they've got seven or eight really good linebackers, and I think Todd Grantham, for all the heat that he does get, he did a pretty good job with the front seven. It's the secondary that seemed to really struggle with him. So I think front seven-wise, they'll use all six, seven, eight of these linebackers that I think are really good. Uh, the question for Louisville will be, can they find a guy or two to be that enormous nose tackle that a 3-4 needs? They don't have an experienced guy that's just as big as a, a Volkswagen to be that guy. And that's really what a 3-4 needs. And I think that they think D'Angelo Brown can be that, but he's a retro freshman. He didn't play last year. So it really remains to be seen if he can do that against a good opponent. But if they find uh, kind of that space-eating nose tackle, I think the front seven will actually be okay because it's a new kind of defense and it actually fits what is returning, despite the loss, I think, of, of a couple of really, really good players. Just continuing on the defensive front, then, um, if we're looking at, at a pretty solid front seven still, um, do you think that they'll be able to make up for the losses um, at safety? Uh, no. <laughs> the short answer is uh, no. I think you had Hakeem Smith, a four-year starter at free safety, and you had Calvin Pryor, three-year guy that left early for the NFL at the other safety spot. Those guys are going to be sorely missed in the spring. They ended up with a walk-on and another guy playing safety, a redshirt freshman. It's a sore spot. It's a scary spot. Uh, there are a number of young guys there, but nobody with much experience at a position that was not just a sort of a, in good shape, but it was sort of the heart of the secondary, both of those guys at safety the entire time Billy Charlie was here. So they signed three more defensive backs after signing day uh, to come in and, and, and sort of bolster safety and secondary help depth. Uh, and they're entering fall camp, and we really still don't know who the safeties are going to be, and it's going to be a challenge. I think the corners, Charles Gaines, I think is super. 
Terrell Floyd, I think, is good. But the safety position, it's, it's the most worrisome position, I think, on the team. Uh, and for as good as the front seven, maybe it's going to have to be outstanding to keep the pressure off of the safety position until they find two or three guys that I think that they feel really good about. I would definitely caution as a team that had a lot of trouble in the secondary last year and was completely lit up by the likes of Clemson and Florida State. Don't even bother playing a conventional defense. Play like a 3-3-5 against them or something and just put as much speed out there as you possibly can. You know, for, for well, us, I mean... Well, I think you know, the good news is at least Grantham, you know, they, they, Grantham and Georgia, they played, they opened the season with Clemson last year and did an all-right job defending. Then granted, Louisville doesn't have quite the, the guys that Georgia does on defense, but he has a level of familiarity with it. The Florida State thing, I just think you're just going to sort of have to grin and bear that game and just see however it goes. Maybe Florida State makes some mistakes, you know, something. Uh, I'm not even really thinking about that game, but I think – some of these other ones. I mean, Miami, new quarterback, but they've got good receivers, good running backs, so maybe you don't get pushed there very much. The, the nice thing is if they can get by that Miami game, I think they've got a few weeks where they can sort of settle in. They don't face a great passing offense for a little while. Maybe by midseason when they play some of these better offenses, they can have that safety position settled. But early on, it's going to be it's going to be pretty scary. It's going to be touch and go, I think. Well, I mean, like you said, though, I mean, while it will be touch and go, I think you guys do kind of get the advantage here of, of playing a bunch of teams that don't necessarily uh, throw the ball well. I mean, I wouldn't even call us a team that threw the ball well, even though we might have improved over the course of the season. You're looking at the first six games there. Um, you're facing, you know, you're facing a Miami team that, again, like, is going to be relying more on the run than the pass, at least early on. And then uh, Murray State, FIU, don't look overly imposing, a Virginia team that honestly um, I'd, I'd be surprised if they don't lose 10 games again. And then a Wake Forest team that that I think is going to get worse before they get better. Um, yeah. I think I think this is a very advantageous schedule uh, for you guys in terms of, uh, you know, just wading into the waters when it comes to the ACC um, and really kind of, you know, getting the guys that need experience. Um, that time on the field and even getting those reserves in, and really just having, you know, a nice depth of experience and a bunch of guys who, who see the field um, and, and can jump in at a moment's notice. And I think, you know, that, that's really the benefit of the scheduling model, too. Um, I know for Syracuse, we've, we've given ourselves a lot of flack over the years because of how, how tough we schedule. And, and even, like, some, we talked to some of the Florida State guys, and they said the same thing. They're like, you know, we want to see you guys win eight or nine games, but you can't do that. If you're scheduling two Big Ten teams on top of, you know, an eight-game ACC schedule, um, or like we are, I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited for the trip, but like we're going down to LSU um, in 2017, and LSU's coming up to the Carrier Dome in 2015. We don't get any hits in Louisiana. Um, I don't really understand why we're doing it. We're probably going to get bludgeoned on national television. <laughs> so to me, I mean, there, there's definitely a debate to be had. Um, over that, but I think that the schedule for Louisville at least, you know, sets up pretty nicely um, at the beginning, and that could pay dividends at the end when things get much, much harder. Yeah, I, look, I think Louisville's goal should be to not not, not uh, start hot, don't get Miami, and then don't lose to anybody that you probably shouldn't lose to. Uh, and maybe by midseason, things are settled enough to where you can think about stealing one against Florida State, Notre Dame, or Clemson 
uh, if they can do that, they can have really a, a pretty special first year. But it, it's going to take a lot. And I think there's going to be a lot of really sort of high scoring, back and forth kinds of uh, of games for Louisville this year, which I think fans would be happy with. I think they really didn't enjoy as much as they did enjoy winning. I think they really didn't enjoy kind of pace and style of play. And I think that even if it's 45-26 every game, I think people around here would would embrace that in a heartbeat. No, and, and I think that that's fair. I know for us, you know, while while it was nice that we kind of turned things around at the end of last season and we knew how to win close games, um, I would say our, our biggest issue with fans, at least in our first year in the ACC, was how close every game was, uh, was how, in general, the, the team, I mean, when you lose as many offensive pieces as we did, I mean, it was tough to, to go from a team that could put up 35 um, without much trouble to a team that had trouble scoring 20 um, more afternoons uh, than not. I guess, you know, closing out on, on just scheduling stuff, um, wh- where do you see Louisville finishing here? Um, and like I said, simple start, but then there's there's really like a, a rough, rough stretch probably from, you know, October 30th on. Um, rivalry games are never predictable. You know, at Boston College, I mean, I don't, I don't really see D.C. As a, as a high-performing team this year, but you never know. Um, on the road against a, a team that, that looks like they're middle of the road. I mean, how, 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 what's the max amount of losses you can see for this team, injuries aside? Yeah, barring anything uh, really out of this world injury-wise or negative, uh, I, I, I think Louisville's looking at 8-4. and four. I think that they will almost assuredly lose to Florida State and Clemson, probably Notre Dame, and then I think there probably will be a loss somewhere that we don't see right now because that's just sort of the nature of playing a harder schedule than you did before. So I think you're looking at an 8-4 and four season and something, you know, like the Music City Bowl or the, the Russell Athletic Bowl or whatever. It is. You know, something like that I think is probably what Louisville was looking at. And if if they sort of hit their insides straight and everything goes the way they really want it to this year, then maybe it's a little better, and they go nine and three, or shock somebody and go ten and two, and then they're looking at a really good bowl game. Uh, but I, I think realistically, you're probably looking at eight and four, uh, losing to the three really elite teams on the schedule, uh, and, and then maybe probably giving one up somewhere that you're maybe not seeing right now. That just seems to me, I think, sort of the most likely, most realistic outcome for them this year. If you're talking about giving up one of those games, you don't see at the moment. Would you would you be surprised if one of those games was Syracuse? No, that's that's sort of been the way things have gone for Louisville at times. I mean, they I don't think anybody saw that game two years ago coming, uh, and it happened. And I wouldn't it wouldn't shock me uh, really at all. And even when Petrino was here, they didn't blow Syracuse out uh, up there. That was always sort of a tough place. Louisville sort of seems to go uh, to sleep up there for some reason. So no, it wouldn't shock me. Uh, really at all. I think I think a number of different teams could be that team, uh, Syracuse included. All right. And then I guess lastly, um, there's been a lot of publicity about your arch rival, Kentucky, and their recruiting and, and how, you know, Mark Stoops seems to have them turned around, at least personnel-wise, even though the record hasn't shown it. I mean, do you, do you think that Kentucky – can get back to being a competent program, winning five to six games, or do you think that this is that, that the SEC has, has changed too much, it's come too far, and that 
that Kentucky, and now that Louisville is in a major conference as well, that Kentucky is likely um, kind of buried. No, I think, look, I think that uh, Kentucky can be a consistent kind of bullish team. I think that they'll uh, just, uh, they are lucky that the SEC didn't go to nine games. I think that really would have been very, very challenging for Kentucky. Uh, but with three kind of, you know, non-conference scrubs and, and a chance against Louisville, because they are recruiting better, there's no denying that, uh, I think they have a chance uh, to be kind of a consistent bullish team. But, you know, I don't, they weren't much better this year. Uh, I'm not a big believer in Neil Brown and that offense. I just don't think he's that good uh, as an offensive coordinator. I think that Stoops is a pretty good coordinator. I don't think he's great, but he's obviously a very, very good recruiter. He's a good teacher. He's a good fundamentals builder. And they're going to be improved this year. I don't know how much better their record will be. Uh, but if he's recruiting, you know, quasi-top 25 classes, they're, they're going to be on the field against most teams. And, and that's a credit to them for being able to do that. They have done a good job selling the chance to come play in the SEC. I think the challenge for them will be if they go three and nine or four and eight again this year, will they still be able to sell with the same energy, or will people start to say, okay, they're just the same old Kentucky anyway? That will be, I think, the challenge for Mark Stoops is year two and still being able to sell some positive momentum because that's a challenge for anybody trying to build. All right, now I guess the last question. Um, what's one thing that Syracuse fans probably don't know about this Louisville team this year that they, they should definitely pay attention to as the fall quickly approaches? Oh, I, well, I think the, the depth really in talent at receiver. I think that Devontae Parker is getting a lot of publicity, but Louisville's got – Devontae Parker, James Quick, Michael Lee Harris, Eli Rogers, uh, those were all four-star guys out of high school. And then they've got a couple of other guys that they feel really good about uh, as well. And a tight end, Gerald Christian, transferred in from Florida, played a little bit last year, but he looked really good in the spring. So I think if, you, if I'm a, a Syracuse fan, everybody's going to focus on the defense and Grantham, the quarterback position, and Michael Dyer. But I, I think the, the depth and the Skill uh, at, at receiver uh, for Louisville is really going to be uh, a challenge, I think, for just about everybody but those, those elite teams on the schedule. And I think that unlike last year where they were content to sort of be uh, conservative and just get through games, Bobby will exploit that strength uh, and has done so in the past. So I think that's something people should be paying more attention to, not just Devontae Parker, but all the receivers. All right. And as a team with a terrible secondary, I am now thoroughly terrified. <laughs> but um, thanks again for hopping on the phone, Mark. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Oh, happy to do it anytime, buddy. Looking forward to this season. As am I, guys. If you want to listen to more Mark, you can head over to ESPN 680 in Louisville, the two-man game where he co-hosts, um, as well as various spots on SB Nation, such as Card Chronicle. Um, and good luck this season, Mark. Good to talk to you again, buddy. Have a good night. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. 
dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. <laughs> 